This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. I'd be surprised if most people I spoke to today, pretty much no matter where I might be in the U.S., were not familiar with the term slow food. Are you familiar with the term and movement known as slow flowers? If you are, then sit back and enjoy our conversation, reveling in the beauty and philosophy of the concept. And if you aren't, then welcome to it. Prepare yourself for some learning, some enjoyment, and some hope all in one. Today, I am pleased to welcome Deborah Prinsing, widely considered a leading outdoor living expert and garden communicator, although I particularly like the descriptor of a creative. Deborah is a Seattle-based award-winning writer, speaker, and leading advocate for American-grown flowers. Through her many Slow Flowers-branded projects, she has convened a national conversation that stimulates floral consumers and professionals alike to make conscious choices about their purchases. Deborah is the producer of slowflowers.com, the online directory to American flower farms and florists, shops and studios, which source domestic and local flowers. She's the author of 10 books, including Slow Flowers and the 50 Mile Bouquet. She's here to tell us more about it. Welcome, Deborah. Hello, how are you, Jennifer? I am well, and I'm very happy to have you here. Let's start with you and you in the garden. Walk us through the influences in your life that led you to the garden personally. Well, you know, I am not a daughter of gardeners. Uh, My parents will be the first ones to admit that they they just dreaded gardening. But um, their parents, both of my paternal and maternal grandfathers, were flower farmers or flower growers. I guess they were they had other jobs, but they always had their hobbies. So I remember as a child, you know, Grandpa Prinzing was a peony grower in Illinois that's the only flower he ever grew. And I have vivid memories of, you know, 40, a bank of 40 peonies behind his, you know, little suburban house. And, and I don't know, they just made an impact on my psyche, I think. Mm-hmm. And and my mother's father, Grandpa Ford, grew prize-winning dahlias in Indiana. Same deal. Like, these guys had other jobs, but their their hobby was, um, they're probably not that far removed from the farm. So they brought the farm into the city when they migrated there, you know, during the Depression. So, Fast forward, you know, I went on to a regular college life, regular job as a journalist. And um, I think like a lot of people, I started gardening when I bought my first house and um, got very excited about choosing ornamental flowers and plants for my garden and switched from being, uh, at one point, switched from being a business writer to a uh, features writer, which got me into doing more stories about home and garden. architecture and landscapes. And, you know, I just went down the rabbit hole. I, I probably a lot of people would say this, Jennifer, where, you know, partway through your lives, you think, I want to be around something that makes me happy. And I want to be engaged in a community of people who think uh, about this topic like I do. And I've, I found gardeners. And then as sort of the next ripple in the pond, I found flower farmers and florists. And those, that's really my world right now, telling the stories of those people. And it is such a happy place uh, to be, you know, starting with that image of your grandfather and all of those peonies. Like, what a great childhood memory. And it's a memory that's full of both uh, 
images and colors, but also fragrance and the texture and that seasonal just moment of when the peonies bloom and, and then they're gone, which it kind of gets to to the heart of what you are, are moving to with your slow flower m- movement. So with that, define for listeners what you mean when you say slow flower movement. Sure. Well, I'm really glad you used the analogy of slow food because I do, uh, you know, openly stole that idea from them and that, you know, may mean different things to different people. For me, the idea of slow food and slow flowers is having a consciousness about our sourcing practices so that we're trying to uh, procure what we eat. And in in the case of flower lovers, what we're harvesting um, in season and as close to our where we live as possible and choosing um, products that have been produced sustainably uh, with a mind for, you know, the earth. Um, there's there's also an intentionality in, I think, the seasonality. I mentioned that. And the whole transportation footprint. How far did this product have to come to you? And with a perishable product like flowers, um, which some would say is a luxury product, I don't necessarily agree with that, but there's that sense that, oh, they're just frivolous. We don't really need them to live. Um, if that's the case, all the more reason to be conscious about how much of a transportation footprint you're imposing on the earth just to have a bouquet of flowers. And it's not just the transportation, right? There are other uh, big other environmental issues to do with imported flowers. Talk a little bit about that and, and what has sort of come to light in the last maybe, you know, 10 years since uh while you were doing your research and then while the books were coming out about what is involved in one, you know, grocery store rose. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think a lot of people, um, your listeners in particular, may be familiar with uh, the book that Amy Stewart wrote in 2007 called Flower Confidential. And um, Amy's from Humboldt County. She's sort of in your backyard. Um, Once that book kind of hit the newsstands and or hit the bookshelves and people started reading about the uh, imbalance in the trade, um, uh, global trade of flowers. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of people were alerted to that. And well, at the same time, I was meeting farmers who were saying, hey, there's an unlevel playing field. Um, it's tilted to favor imports. So that number that shocked me when I, I became in, involved in, in this sort of, I guess, campaign is that 80% of cut flowers sold in the U.S. are imported and only 20% are domestically produced. And um, the we don't know a lot, we, I don't have a lot of firsthand knowledge myself of what is happening in countries like South America and, excuse me, in continents like South America, in Colombia and Ecuador, and what's, what are the practices, um, but they are factory farms, factory flower farms that are having to use huge um, kind of mechanisms, huge irrigation processes. Um, I know that there are um, pesticides and herbicides and fumigants that are used on those flowers that are not permitted by USD, or excuse me, by EPA in the U.S. So they're not clean necessarily. There are emerging a, a few South American producers who are labeled organic, um, which I applaud, but I still think that there's a, a bigger um, benefit to sourcing locally and sourcing uh, 
all flowers in the U.S. are adhering to EPA regulations so that they're definitely uh, healthier for the planet. And exactly, it's not it's not just the chemicals in the place or the labor treatment in the place where they might be coming from, but then there is still the issue of embodied energy getting getting them here. So, um, at what point in your career did you know that you would focus on this kind of work? I, I believe, from what I understand of reading um, both books, Slow Flowers and the Fifty Mile Bouquet that you started your research for the 50 mile bouquet in 2006. So it must have been kind of a, an aha when you, you know, a year later, a year into your research, uh, read Flower Confidential that you referenced oh. earlier. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And Amy Stewart is a, a great friend and a, you know, big supporter of uh, what David Perry and I did with the 50 mile bouquet. David Perry was the photographer on that book. He's a Seattle based photographer. And we actually were on a scouting trip looking at, landscape uh, destinations, gardens that I wanted to perhaps pitch to uh, one of my editors. I write for magazines and um, newspapers. And um, he said, hey, I've got this flower farmer I want to introduce you to. And we went on like a little side journey. And I met this young flower farmer named Aaron Benzacane, um, young mother uh, in um, Mount Vernon, Washington, which is Skagit Valley. It's between Seattle and uh, British Columbia. And she was growing sweet peas and having babies. And she was trying to be a flower farmer, but she there really wasn't a kind of well-defined local scene that she knew about. So she just started reaching out to people. And through that friendship, I kind of uh, had my consciousness raised and David was interested in flower farming. He, he's done tons of agricultural photography. And we just started doing these little side trips, like whenever we could find a flower farmer and meet somebody in California, Oregon, and Washington primarily, we would just um, schedule an extra day to meet up, take photos, do an interview. And we kept, we didn't really have a solid idea, but we just kept seeing where the stories took us. And over the course of four or five years, um, it became evident that there was a lot of storytelling to be done and a lot of voices of farmers and, and faces of farmers behind the flowers that we wanted to bring to light. So it kind of morphed into a book, um, a book that was hard to sell. <laughs> um, I, I think we were very fringe or perceived as fringe. I, I had a conversation with an editor that I had done a big book with, an architecture book with um, in New York City and pitched this idea of I don't even think we were calling it the 50 mile bouquet at the time, but I pitched it to her and she said, you know, that's fine if you live in Santa Barbara and you can have flowers year round. Um, but this idea of local flowers is not mainstream. It's not relevant to the rest of the country. Mm. That's the kind of feedback I was getting. So it took a, a long time. That, that book was published in 2012. So it was, <laughs> it was a love project. It took a long time. A long time. But mm -hmm. one of the things that strikes me as we come into this conversation is to, you know, look at these two books, um, The 50 Mile Bouquet, and then just a year and a half later, The Slow Flower Book came out. And over the course of that eight years, from the beginning of the research for The 50 Mile Bouquet mm -hmm. to the publication of Slow Flowers, to say nothing of what it looks like from today looking back, aren't you amazed at the groundswelling of enthusiasm and progress that has been made on this front by this by this movement that you you kicked off. Well, I feel really grateful for 
the the people who get it <laughs> and gar- gardeners generally get it. I mean, gar- you don't have to tell a gardener about seasonality um, or about locality. That That's what we do when we grow our, in our own backyard. Um, what I was, mo- what I've been most encouraged by is that the conventional floral industry is moving in this direction. Um, and, you know, that we've got mainstream uh, wholesalers who are now creating um, local, uh, departments within their branches to feature local flowers, or they're um, at least promoting American-grown flowers through some labeling programs. And um, to me, that's exciting because all of a sudden, then it's not perceived as some like a little farmer's market, little you know, hobby, but it's seriously um, driving demand in this industry. And I think we're seeing that in all consumer categories uh, about you know this idea that Americans. Um, care about the source of what they're spending their money on and flowers there's sort of like this harmonic convergence of of my promotion of slow flowers with that national sentiment in you know other categories like cars or fashion or of course food Um, so yeah it's just a perfect storm that I hope is not a trend but I believe is a cultural shift and the shift is one that um, we're you know, I don't think it's going to reverse. I think we're conscious of all of the kind of related benefits of sourcing locally in, you know, whatever we spend our money on. We're speaking with Deborah Princing, gardener, author, and passionate advocate for American-grown flowers through her work known as the Slow Flower Movement. Deborah has told us about the seeds that grew into the Slow Flowers Movement in her life. And after the break, we'll be back to talk more about the environmental and cultural impacts of the movement and its goals for gardeners, flower lovers, and flower growers of all kinds. Stay with us. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, this is Cultivating Place, and I'm Jennifer Jewell. Today we have the good fun of speaking with Deborah Princing, gardener, author of The 50 Mile Bouquet and Slow Flowers. Having talked with us about the beginnings of her work advocating for American-grown flowers and the slow flower movement, we're back to talk more about the broader impacts and hopes of the movement. So you can go on to slowflowers.com if you are uh, a florist who's looking for a source to purchase different flowers, or if you're um, somebody who's preparing for a big event like a wedding and need to source flowers, and you can find it's like a directory. Talk about the sort of different categories in that directory and and how it how you put that together so that people could easily use it. Sure. Oh well, <laughs> it's um, you know for non techies like me, it was it was easy to say what I wanted the site to achieve, and then of course something all together with it when you got the coders involved. But you know what happened was when the Fifty Mile Bouquet came out, and really that book was just you know a, a documentary style, beautiful documentary style book with photography of flower farms and and American grown flowers, and then the stories of the people involved. But I inevitably did lectures and spoke to the media about this book and every single time um, that I had a conversation someone would say um, hey I I drank the Kool-Aid I believe in this this is really important but how do I find a florist that I know is selling me local flowers or how do I find a farmer I can buy direct from and so Jennifer I just kept saying someone's got to do a directory and pretty soon that someone was me and 
thisflowers.com website came to be, and it's been out. Um, we just celebrated our second year um, right around Mother's Day this year. So it's really organized. Of course, I'm thinking like a journalist, right? Not like a business person. It's organized like you would organize, I guess you'd organize a, a yellow pages or something. It's, it's you can search by category. Uh, you can search by state, by zip code. And um, your information that you're seeking will pop up. You can ser- search by crop. You can search just who are the peony growers or, or who are the dahlia growers. Um, those categories tend to be um, how the industry is broken out. So flower farmers, uh, retail florists, studio florists, who are generally people who uh, don't have a, you know, they sell to the consumer, but they don't have a retail shop, um, wholesalers, and people who do only weddings and events. Uh, as designers and that so you can kind of figure you know where where you're looking you can try to find a a resource and is there any commitment to um, being organic or sustainably grown or or is that its own category so that you could say you know find an organic grower of this in this well yeah no that's really um, a, a big concern and unfortunately it's very hard for flower farms to become USDA certified organic so um, mainly because most flower farms are highly, highly diversified with over 100 different cultivars or varieties or genus. So they're not kind of like a, USDA is not set up to make it easy for getting organic certification. And they, that, that whole program was designed for food crops. So a lot of farmers have other ways that they identify their um, sustainable practices. And so they're using those terms in their in their keyword searches. So I don't have a, your organic button yet. I mean, I suppose that's something that I would uh, like to add in the future. But usually people are looking for um, terms like uh, certified naturally grown, or salmon safe, um, or sure harvest. These are some of these uh, third party um, sustainable labeling programs that um, farmers, small farmers especially, are being part of. Veraflora is one that the larger farms are using. Mm-hmm. So the way we handle that is we just ask those farms to add that to their keyword um, kind of fields when they're setting up their listing and so that they will pop up when people are looking by those terms. But I, I, I'm, I'm in, intrigued by your suggestion that we should add a button. I, I think that's something that could easily be done. I'm going to have to look into that. I do want to also just add quickly, Jennifer, that we did add Canada this year, and it's because uh, there is a vibrant slow flowers movement in Canada of farmers and florists who really care about growing for their local communities and selling to their consumers. And there, we have so many affinities because most of them are along the border um, in urban centers mm-hmm. uh, like Vancouver and Toronto and um uh, Montreal. So we, um, we've created kind of a, a special category for searching Canada. I think there's about 12 members in three provinces right now. So just, just getting started. So exciting. Mm-hmm. So now I want to end um, with a big sort of question, and that is, and it's not really a question, it's a request. So the whole point of the Slow Flowers book as a follow-up to the 50-mile bouquet was this sort of experiment on your part of, as a a garden communicator and avid home gardener, you kind of wanted to see how this would work out for you, taking, um, you know, doing a n floral arrangement, taking Mm -hmm. a floral arrangement, and 
you know, going into your garden each week and creating a new bouquet for mm-hmm. yourself with what was available. You supplemented a little bit, but but talk about how that worked out for you through the seasons because it isn't always just about flowers. It's about just beauty in plant material, and um, mm-hmm. and it was it was a beautiful result. Both books are beautiful, just lush with, yeah. Well, thanks. That's really great. I I have a big smile on my face listening to you say that. Um, you know the story I just told you about the editor who s- said well, I could achieve this if I lived in Santa Barbara, but nowhere else. <laughs> right. She really is the person who kind of got under my skin, and I. I said, well, I'll show her, you know, she's wrong. And uh, that's when I decided, well, I'm just going to make a bouquet every week for a year. And yes, I'm in Seattle, but I'm, you know, we're like, I don't know, zone 8A or 8B. And we were, we definitely have frost and uh, hard freezes and snow in the winter. I mean, there's not a lot of blooms. My, my winter palette is, you know, twigs and conifers basically here in Seattle. So uh, I started this project not knowing it was going to be a book. I thought it was just going to be a blog project. I started on November 1st of 2011 or 12. I can't remember. I think it was 2011. I was still working on the 50-mile bouquet at the time. And I, I don't know what I was thinking starting it in like the most dormant season. But, you know, that first bouquet I made, I had cut all the hydrangeas from one of my beautiful shrubs. And I made a, an arrangement with uh, hydrangeas and dusty miller foliage and some quaking grass. And that arrangement lasted for five months in my house because all of those things are great for natural drying. Um, so that was kind of a good lesson. But every week I would try to seek out, well, what can I harvest? What, what looks good? And it prompted me to look at branches and a lot of foraged material that came down like from the neighborhood trees during storms uh, as beautiful ingredients. And it's, it was a, it was almost like a meditative exercise to ponder what nature was offering me every week and then take, take the quiet time to arrange it and then photograph it. It was, it was a wonderful experience. Anyone can do this by the way. And some of them are really rich and dense with material, and other, just like the seasons they come from, are just a little more spare and a little more minimalistic. And Mm -hmm. I think it does really encourage us, even those of us who are gardeners, like we get so caught up in what we need to do or what it, you know, we think we might should, things should look like, that we fail to keep seeing it with really open eyes and putting clippings or prunings or you know, not flowers, but foliage to, to best advantage and to keep enjoying them um, as long as we possibly can. Absolutely. And I did have a few cheats, Jennifer. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, completely pure. I bought from my local flower farmers uh, and here in Oregon and Washington, I am so lucky because I have so many um, active uh, small farms that are selling uh, to the floral trade. Uh, but I could get lilies and um, roses in all winter long from a wonderful family farm outside of Portland called Peter Court Roses. And they, um, they use sustainable practices to grow in greenhouses. And they're the last remaining cut rose grower in the Pacific Northwest. And I don't want to see them disappear. So I wanted to patronize them. Um, and then orchids. Or uh, I cut up Rex begonia plants all the time for foliage. I mean, I buy poor house plants to sort of pay a little price on this thing. Um, or edibles, you know, there's just so many cool things you could do to force bulbs. And so I try to 
I tried to explore this myself and then that became part of the story in the winter months of the slow flowers book, like craving flowers. Well, here's what you could do. You know, it, you can go ahead and get yourself an orchid and it will last. If you cut it and put it in a base, it will last three or four weeks. So I believe we've recently completed the second annual American Flowers Week, which this year was just before the 4th of July. Congratulations on that. That's a big milestone. Well, thank you. And, you know, American Flowers Week uh, was really inspired by my friends in the UK who started British Flowers Week, and they just completed it. Uh, it's, it's held in June. I They've been super generous to me. They've shared all their resources, all their tricks and techniques. And so they've been, it's, it's neat to have that kind of, we have a similar situation here that they have in the UK, which is dealing with imports and dealing with this sort of consumer ignorance. Uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but consumers just don't know where flowers come from. So that's what American Flowers Week was inspired by, and we're just jazzed to see all this participation. All it really is is a a chance to showcase uh, flowers that you have grown or designed with that are uh, local and in season um, during the 4th of July week. And if you want to make them red, white, and blue, that's really cool, too, because I think people are a little literal about these things. Um, it's a social media campaign, and so it is a very low cost of entry. Anybody can participate, and there's no no financial obligation. Uh, but we've got, I guess what I'm most excited about is we have participation at all levels of the floral industry, from conventional wholesalers to grocery stores to e-commerce uh, to flower farmers and, and studio florists. So it's only year two, but we'll see what, we'll see where it goes. Excellent. I will be looking for that hashtag. Um, tell us the hashtag. Hashtag American Flowers Week or hashtag Slow Flowers. And you can find, you know, all kinds of activity all around the country, what people are doing. It's going to be beautiful. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an honor. I'm a big believer in the value of this work, of it helping to transform our culture into a more mindful place and our gardening and farming cultures into healthier places. Thank you for it. Oh, I've enjoyed it so much, Jennifer. I I wish we had about five hours, but we'll have that conversation another time. Deborah Princing is a Seattle-based award-winning writer, speaker, and leading advocate for American-grown flowers. Through her many Slow Flowers branded projects, she has convened a national conversation that stimulates consumers and professionals alike to make conscious choices about their floral purchases. Each Wednesday, you can listen to Deborah's Slow Flowers podcast, available for download at her website, debraprincing.com, or on iTunes. Next week, the conversations continue when we're joined by Kristen Curran, founder with her husband Drew Merritt of Humble Roots Native Nursery in Mosier, Oregon, providing ethically propagated native plants of the Pacific Northwest and Columbia River Gorge and striving to educate people about native plants and their conservation. Humble Roots propagates native plants of their region as well as conducts rare plant monitoring, propagation, and outplanting, native pollinator habitat conservation, and ecological restoration. Their efforts improve the future for the native plants and gardeners of their region, which is educational for us all. Join us. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Matt Schiltz. For this week's audio archive or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit mynspr.org. For more information, including many photos, please visit jewelgarden.com. For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram or Facebook. 
Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.